so much. We appreciate you and looking forward to more music, and this will increase our second balance service attendance, I'm sure, as you want to come back and hear it again. Heavenly Father, we have been blessed this morning. As we have joined our voices to sing your praise, and as we have been privileged to listen to those with gifts who've dedicated them to you, to proclaim to us through music the glory and the beauty of Christ. Now may we see that beauty as we open up the holy word of God today, that our lives would be forever changed. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Alexander the Great was leading his troops in battle from victory to victory, gaining more and more territory. Under his command was a soldier whose name was also Alexander, but in battle this soldier was a coward, displayed no courage, ran from the battle instead of running into it. This was brought to the commander's attention, and so after one particular battle, he summoned the soldier, and he said this to him, either you change your ways or you change your name. Don't bring shame on my glorious name. And when I remember that story, I think of the Apostle Paul who said something very similar when he said, walk worthy of your calling. Don't live in such a way that you shame the name by which you are called. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue our study picking up after the Christmas break with sit, walk, and stand. The book of Ephesians neatly falls into these three categories. Sit speaks about our spiritual position as we are seated in the heavenlies and placed in Jesus Christ. That's chapters one through three. Then walk deals with the emphasis of our response to who we are and obedience in our life to Christ, primarily chapter four and five. And then finally, standing in battle, putting on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter six. Sit, walk, and stand. So we now come to chapter four. This is the next major division in the book. And actually, Paul, I think, is picking up from where he left off, or at least the direction he intended on going into, chapter three, verse one, because you'll notice that the verses are very similar. Paul talks about being a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and then he is, as it were, interrupted for all of chapter three. It's a divine interruption, But now he comes back to this idea of, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. 56 verses in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and there's only one command, remember. And now there is going to be a whole host of commands, because Paul goes from merely talking about who we are in Christ to how we ought to live in Christ, from what God has done to what we must do. 
He goes from theological foundations to their practical implications. Not that doctrine is not practical, it is. But we need to see them joined together. And that's the approach of the Apostle Paul to lay out the truth of our position in Christ and then to talk about its implications. The well-known Handley Mould says, doctrine runs of itself into practice in the mind of the apostles, and practice always feels its footing in doctrine. The two go hand in hand. I dare say that it's easy for us at times to work on learning doctrine than it is to live out the doctrine. It's easy for us, easier for us, to be puffed up with knowledge than to live in love. And so now the Apostle Paul is going to throw at us, inspired by the Spirit of God, exhortation after exhortation and command after command. Who are we in these first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, seated in Christ? We are one people reconciled to God and reconciled to one another from every tongue and tribe and nation, every color and every culture. We are one. And secondly, we're a holy people, distinct from the world, meant to live like Jesus. And if we name the name of Christ, then we should walk as Jesus walked. So we must maintain our unity, and we must manifest our purity And those are the themes that Paul begins to generate here in chapter 4. First of all, maintaining our unity and then emphasizing the fact that we need to manifest our purity. If we are one people, then it's time to live like it. To live in such a way worthy of the name. To stop shaming the name by which we have been called. And in this one exhortation, walk in a manner manner worthy of your calling, Paul basically summarizes what he's going to say in the next three chapters. He'll go into great detail, but this is the theme. Now, in some of our translations, we have the phrase, live a life. But as we've mentioned before, uh, the literal word, the literal translation of the word is to walk. And that's a metaphor for living one's life. We walk through this world. We live our life in such a way. And I like the phrase, walk worthy. It's just a little easier for us to keep in our mind and heart. So if you were looking at an older translation, you would notice in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. There's a bad walk. There's a bad lifestyle. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of the light, not as children of the darkness. And in chapter 5, verse 15, walk carefully, be careful, be circumspect, be cautious in the way that you walk in this world. He repeats it over and over and over again, walk worthy. Now, I might say that the word worthy does not mean to earn your salvation or to merit a positive relationship with God, that I walk in such a worthy way that God must bless me. No, we've already been blessed. That's the first three chapters. Now as a thank you, 
we should respond in the appropriate way. And that's what the word worthy means, to live a life that is appropriate with the name by which you have been called, that is fitting and consistent with the fact that we call ourselves little Christs. That's what the name Christian means, little Christ. So how do we do it? How do we walk in a worthy fashion? Well, Paul puts it this way. Verse two, be completely humble and be gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he mentions humility, and the idea of gentleness is coupled with that, humble and gentle. He mentions the idea of patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he mentions the idea of unity, which in one sense is the outcome of humility and patience. Let's look at those just briefly, this idea of humility. Rome, like modern America, thought that humility was a quality to be despised. It was the attitude of a slave, humble. By the way, the root word literally means lowly-minded. Be lowly-minded. And of course, we have the opposite in our culture when we speak of someone who is high-minded. They're haughty, high-minded. We are to be lowly-minded. And by lowly-minded, we don't mean some kind of false, demeaning attitude toward yourself. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm worse than nothing. Uh, I should just retire and never be seen. And I'm horrible. By the way, people who talk like that, if anyone ever does that, I, I always want to do this. I don't know that I ever have, but I always want to agree with them. Yeah, that's right, you are. And their first response is one of offense because they're not telling me what they really think about themselves. They're trying to uh, gain some type of sympathy. They want my attention. And I do the same when I begin to grovel about how horrible I am. We're not to take a demeaning view of ourselves, but a true view. Take a true view of yourself. It's not low self-esteem. It's a biblical self-image. Those are two different things. And here's what I mean. You've got to keep it in balance. Number one, this is how you need to view yourself. I am a creature of God made in his image, and every human being can say that. And my friend, that elevates you just one step below the angels. Psalm chapter 8. He has placed us just below the angels, but over everything else in all creation. That's a high exalted position. I am made in the image of God by God, but I am fallen and broken, a rebel at heart. Can you say that? Uh, many people want to tout their abilities but they don't want to acknowledge their sinfulness. And Jesus came to heal the sick, and until you acknowledge you're sick, there's no hope for you. So I am made in the image of God. That's great. That's positive, but I am fallen and broken and a rebel at heart. However, I am the object of God's mercy. I am the one 
he is seeking. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost, and that includes me. God's interest is my reclamation. God's interest is my restoration. How interested is God in saving me? The cross. Sent his son to die for you. Do you think he loves you? I think so. Where's your self-worth? I'm made by God, and even though God is seeking to save me and restore me. And once you believe in him, you're a child of God, and your self-worth comes from the mercy and grace of God. Never in your own merit. Pride is the opposite of humility. Jot this down in your notes, in your mind and heart. Proverbs 13.10, and I quote it from the older King James translation because it's the one that memorized it. Only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. Say that with me. Only by pride cometh contention. That means pride lurks behind all discord. That means pride starts every fight. And this is a verse I love to throw out in counseling. Two people will come, maybe marriage counseling, and one person will just start, and I let them talk, and then the next, next person talks, and they just go on after the other, and sometimes it gets heated, and when I, as a referee, finally come, uh, the scene down, I quote Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention. Tell me about your pride. And then I go to the other one. Tell me about your pride. Because you can't have a fight like this without pride. Where is it? The Bible tells us that we need to be humbled in the presence of a holy God. And ultimately, we're going to see that the great secret to unity is humility. Every gift, every ability that you possess was given to you not to inflate your ego, but so that you could serve others, serve others in humility. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, he said something very similar. He says in chapter 2, if there's any comfort in Christ, any comfort of his love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded. That is, have the same love. Be of one accord and of one mind. Get this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, humility, let each of you esteem others as better than yourself. That's the position of a servant. That's humility. Don't look out only for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. And then he mentions the word gentle which is the way humility responds, in gentleness. Gentleness is that old word meekness, which means strength under control. Someone said that meekness is that gentleness of a strong personality who nevertheless is master of themselves and servant of others. Meekness is the strong personality who has mastered themselves so that they can be a servant to others. 
That's what we're talking about here. And by the way, lest you think that these are servile, low, despised virtues. Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly or humble in heart. Come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. This is exactly who Jesus is. Now notice the next thing that is mentioned, the word patience. Humble people will display patience. Patience is also described with the word of long-suffering or forbearance. Long-suffering is that ability to put up with aggravating people of whom the church seems to be so richly blessed. We have the opportunity to learn patience all the time. You get married and you realize how selfish you really are. And you've got to live with someone else. and You've got to learn patience. Impatience is me not getting my way when I want it. Forbearance is me realizing that God has more work to do on those around me just like he has more work to do on me. And so patience recognizes that and humbly submits to the plan of God. Another way to define patience is Long-souled, long-suffering. I've noticed in our own culture, we have a way of expressing this. Sometimes we'll say, that guy's a piece of work, <laughs> which means you're amused by their antics or aggravated by them, disgusted with them. That guy's a piece of work. But what we should say is, that guy is a work in progress. And so am I. That guy's a work in progress. Because God is not finished with us. The work of sanctification begins the day of our redemption, the day we savingly believe in Christ. And it won't finish until glory. God is not finished working on me. Now that's not an excuse for your lack of diligence. It's not an excuse for your woeful progress in holiness. But it is true about everyone around you, and it should develop in you patience. And these twin virtues, humility and patience, are essential to the third, unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility and unity are inextricably linked, like foot in shoe or hand in glove, they go together designed for one another. And you cannot have a unified church unless you have humble people. Some people think this is a confessional hymn that starts out in verse four. Notice that the word one is mentioned seven times. Seven is the perfect number in the Bible, and is that a mere coincidence that the basis of unity, the Foundational pillars of unity are seven. Seven ones. The confessional hymnal says there is one body and one spirit, one hope to which you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. And if we were in the South, we would say in you all. But God is over everything 
to his church. Now, did you notice the Trinity? If this indeed is a confessional statement, which uh, I believe it certainly could be, you've got this structure of the Trinity in there, right? The Spirit is mentioned first, and then the Lord is mentioned. And of course, that definitely refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is one Lord. That refers to Christ. And there is one God and Father of all. So you've got the Spirit in verse 4, the Son in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. This is so Pauline. This is so book of Ephesians. How many times have we highlighted the Trinity? But each one of the other four mentions of the one this or the one that are connected to our relationship with the Trinity. For instance, we are one body because of the Spirit. One body because of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who pulls us together as one. We are baptized by one spirit into one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, and we were all given that one spirit to drink. So the spirit is connected to the one body. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is connected to the one hope and one faith and one baptism. Our hope is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Our hope is is that when we see him, we will be like him. The glorification, the final installment of our redemption, our hope is in the Lord who gave himself for us. It's all in Christ. We have hope nowhere else except in Christ. And then there's one faith. One faith means believing in the one Lord, the one who died for us. It's the solo faith. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross. And there is one baptism. Now this has been debated because there is in the scripture water baptism and spirit baptism, but the point that is being made here is that you are only baptized once into Jesus, whether you're talking about a manifestation on the outside or the actual working of the spirit redeeming your heart on the inside, You are, when you become a believer in Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ. And that only happens once. There's one baptism. So these are core doctrinal beliefs. And then there is but one God who is the father of the family. Right? He is the father of all, and he is over all. Notice the universality of his influence. He is through all, referring to believers, and he is in all, by the Holy Spirit. He is in us. If you reverse that, the other way around, you have one God who creates one family, the Father over one family. One Lord Jesus Christ who creates faith and hope and the baptism. And there's one Holy Spirit who creates the body. Or if you'll allow me as a preacher to fall into a homiletical method of alliteration, when you put this all together, we are to be lowly-minded and long-suffering and like-minded. That's unity. 
And that's what God wants in his church. Our unity, think about this, our unity in Christian experience arises out of the unity of the Trinity. And because God is unified, one yet three, so we are to be unified, one with many members, one body with many members. The unity of the church, the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is just as indestructible as the unity of the Godhead. So you say, I don't see it that way. Unity in churches? If there is true unity, just like the unity of the Trinity, why should we seek unity? And if it's true, why don't I see it? Go back to verse 3 for a moment. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The word maintain is used in some translations. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. That implies the danger of what? Disunity. We have it, but we have to work to keep it. And notice it says, make every effort to keep it. Are we unified in Christ? Absolutely. Is that something that we just take for granted? Well, too often we do. And we don't work to maintain it. How many times has a young couple got, gotten together, there's been a rather involved courtship, maybe uh, even with good counseling, and they've been planning this day to be married, and now... They're finally married, and somehow this young couple has in their mind, this is it, it's done, we're married. And they don't realize that marriage takes a ton of work. If you thought it took work before you got married, <laughs> bless your heart. Wow, are you in for a rude awakening? And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying marriage is great. It's designed by God. I love the fact that I've been married to a great woman for so many years, but it takes work. And I always get this from people. No, being married to Nancy has got to be the easiest thing in the world. So I've got to use another illustration somewhere because people just don't believe me. But marriage takes work. Or how about the young kid who says to his dad, I want to buy a car. I found one. It's a wonderful car. How much does it cost? $300. That's a wonderful car. How much money do you have? $300. I can buy it. Uh, do you realize there's tax involved when you buy your car? Well, that's okay. I'll take care of it. Do you realize that there are repairs, oil changes? Do you realize that you've got to put gas in the car? Do you realize? And the dad goes a long way about making sense, and the young kid says, all I have to do is buy it, and then I've got it. No, you've got to maintain it, and that's more than the original purchase. We are one in Christ, but once you have it, you've got, make, you've got to make every effort to maintain it. I think we've got, by the way, South has a lot of unity. If we were to grade ourselves with other churches, we would look pretty good, but God doesn't grade on a curve. And we could improve our unity, could we not? Could we not come closer together in love I believe we should. I believe we can. 
Romans 14, 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. This was the last prayer of Christ before uh, he was led away by the soldiers to be crucified, that they may be one, he said to the Father, that the disciples who believe in me, that they may be one just like we are one so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them, the world. That is one of the greatest evangelistic tools in all the world is a unified church because then people know that Jesus was sent by God, that he dwells in that place, and that he loves the sinner. Lack of unity in the church destroys evangelistic efforts. I'll never forget when a small church in Ohio that I was part of, after I had left, I came back, I was ministering there some to that church, and it split into two. And one of the people from the new church said to me, well, this is really good now, because now there are two churches in town to witness for Christ. I said, no, no. Now you've got a, Christ has got a, a black eye in this city because of your church. The best evangelistic tool is unity and coming together. So at the deepest level, I have to remember this. I have something in common with every fellow believer. It's the same spirit who lives in my heart that lives in theirs. The same spirit. And because of that, we need to love one another. Because of that, we need to live in such a way that people know that we belong to Jesus Christ. I remember Stuart Briscoe, who is from England, telling a story years ago I thought was really good. He said, I'm not sure it's a true story. It probably isn't, but it's still a good story. He said, the king of England had two sons who were playing in London's Hyde Park one day, and one of the boys said to his brother, I bet you a shilling that all fat policemen have bald heads. The brother said, you're on. So uh, obligingly, a rather large policeman came along wearing their regulation British helmet, but they needed to dislodge the helmet from the police officer, and they weren't very adept at this challenge. And just then, a scruffy kid from East London came along. They said, could you dislodge that helmet from the policeman's head? He said, sure could. The brothers of the uh, sons of the king uh, said to this scruffy kid, and they didn't know who he was, they said, we'll give you six pence if you do it. So he picked up a stone, threw it perfectly, and knocked the helmet off. And sure enough, the large policeman was bald, which proved nothing, but they weren't into st statistical analysis. It just happened to be that way. And so the brother says to his brother, now it's time for you to pay up. You owe me a shilling. Just then the policeman came and grabbed both of the boys by the neck. He said, what's your name? And the one boy said, I'm the Prince of Wales. <laughs> the policeman said, you assault my person. Now you insult my intelligence. Tell me what your real name is. He says, no, I really am the Prince of Wales. And his brother said, that's right. The policeman said to his brother, who are you? He said, I'm the Duke of Kent which was all true. Scruffy kid knew nothing about this. Policeman looked at the scruffy kid and said, well, what's your name? He nudged the two boys and said, listen, boys, I won't let you down. He said, I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
But why did the policemen not believe the boys when they were said they were sons of the king? Because they weren't living like it. And no one will believe us if we say God lives and Christ is our Savior if we don't live like Jesus lived. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Thank you for saving us by grace and grace alone. Now I pray that the good works that you ordained that we should perform will be seen in us so people will see the good works and give you glory and know that you belong, that we belong to you and we belong to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open your hymnal to 286, hymn 286.